Good day, everybody. This is Godfrey Dini from Fashion Network um, with our latest podcast with Luxury Insight. And we have the good fortune to have with us today Stephen Jones, uh, probably the most single important uh, milliner, hatter in the fashion industry in the last half century. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's begin at the beginning. Mm -hmm. How did you become a miller? How did I become a miller? Yeah. Completely by chance. I really, you know, when I was growing up in the 60s, I wanted to be an astronaut. I didn't want to be a train driver, but I wanted to be an astronaut. But I come from the rural of Liverpool and Cape Canaveral was very far away, the other side of the Atlantic. And you had to go over Ireland to get there too. So double challenge. Uh, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I I went and did fashion at St. Martin's. I was doing women's wear, but I really couldn't sew. My tailoring tutor took pity on me. <laughs> and after the first few months, and he said, Stephen, you know, you need to get some extra help because otherwise you're going to fail the first year because I didn't know one end of a needle from the other. <laughs> and so he owned this very revered couture house called La Chasse in London. Mm. And it was there that various people had been the designers. Uh, Hardy Amy's had trained there in the 30s. It had existed since about since before the First World War. And I went in as a ladies tailor uh, two days a week and during the holidays to learn how to sew. And uh, I was the only person who did was an intern at that point. I didn't know anybody else who did anything like that. <laughs> it's so different now. And uh, the, the tailoring workroom was great. And I made coffee and picked up the pins and <laughs> kept my eyes open, yeah. saw how the adult world operated. Mm -hmm. And even between two people, you could have politics and, <laughs> you know, the reality of life. But next to the tailoring workroom was a millinery workroom. And they were all ladies of a certain age. Um, they, you know, they must have been at least 35. <laughs> you know, when you're 19, somebody who's 25 seems very, very like old. completely ancient. Anyway, um, I they worked hard and they played hard and they seemed to have a great attitude to their work. And there was Lily and Benjamin and Shirley. Shirley was that of the workroom who always looked immaculate every day in a matching hat to her outfit. And I asked for a transfer. And after I'd made a hat over the weekend, um, I was accepted on the Monday morning. And that's how, so it was a bit of a eureka moment. And after my first day, I, I really loved it, really loved it. It wasn't as scary as making clothing. Clothing was yards of fabric, meters of fabric, sorry to the youngins, um, <laughs> or to the non-Americans. At falling over a sewing machine, I didn't really understand. But with a hat, you were making a constructed object. And somehow that was more me. I'd always, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd always made things. Um, as a child, I was always making things out of cardboard boxes or funny, you know. Objet d'art. I wouldn't call them objet d'art, but sort of toys and just ways of passing time. It's what we did as a family almost. You know, some people come from mathematical families mm. or musical families. I think it sort of came from an artistic family, which had never been realized because my parents grew up, up, I mean, during the war. Um, my parents were born in 1920. I was the youngest. So the idea of going for my father of going to art school, you know, was non-existent. So he became an engineer, worked in Camelette's shipyards in Birkenhead. 
and was what they called a monkey because he was quite small. So he worked on submarines. So he could go down between the inner and the outer skin of a submarine. He was small enough to fit. It was incredibly dangerous work. Um, but I think he would have been an artist given a different time. You first became uh, prominent uh, in the period <clears throat> of the Blitz, mm -hmm. the New Romantics, when um, magazines, independent magazines like The Face began, and there was this explosion. Uh, and a, a, that first meeting of music, graphics, design, art, and fashion. Yeah. Tell us about those days. I mean, I'm sure there's a thousand <laughs> stories, but tell us. Well, I think just about the media. I mean, of course, there were magazines like Vogue uh, uh, or Bazaar uh, or Vanity Fair or uh, Elle magazine, uh, but we just didn't think they were relevant to us. <laughs> Neither they were they interested in featuring us because yeah. what we did was something called street style. Yeah. And which was a very, very, very different world. And those magazines, like The Face and ID magazine, sort of reflected what we were doing, how we felt, um, what we were creating. And it was Terry Jones at ID and, you know, all the people at The Face. And ID was very much about your ID. Yeah. And The Face was very much about the image. It's funny how they got the title. I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but they got the titles first and then made a magazine which fitted with it or vice versa. But certainly that was at the beginning of what they called the designer decade, where everybody was completely fascinated by this world of fashion in a way that maybe they're not so much nowadays because there's so many other, so much other stuff. Pardon my ignorance, you mean the 70s or the 80s? The 80s, the 80s. Yeah. The 80s. <laughs> Um, this is also the beginning of MTV. So suddenly what singers looked like was almost more important than what they sounded like. <laughs> um, what was the first fashion show for, for which you um, designed hat? The first fashion show I did was for Sandra Rhodes. Ah. Um, I knew her through, I had met her through Andrew Logan, Dougie Fields, Brian Eno. And she'd sort of become a friend and she said, you make hats. And I, I worked with her for a short amount of time, but she was my first entree yeah. into the fashion world. But you, your, your, your star rose rapidly when you began to work with people like uh, the late, great Vivian Westwood, John Galliano. Absolutely. I mean, I worked in England, but people always said to me, you need to work in France. And I, it, Vivian, at that time, Vivian was the only designer we would consider because we didn't think anybody else was relevant. <laughs> I mean, the only person I knew who could afford Vivian work clothes were Steve Strange, yeah. people who were in bands or had oh. maybe been working in Japan on a design contract and yeah. could afford <laughs> things. The for, and it, they were the people who had the money and yeah. they spent it with Vivian. Um, and I'd met Vivian, yeah. funnily enough, when I was still a student. And it was a funny thing how it happened. We you or used to go to the us punks because I was a punk yeah, then. Yeah. This is nineteen seventy six. We went to this club called Louise's, which was a lesbian nightclub oh. in Poland Street in London, and that was the only place that punks could get into. And Louise was this fantastic grand dame, a bit like Googie Withers or something, and uh, she was there in her grey mink coat with diamonds in inverted commas. Um, <laughs> And our grey hair. And we went in. And I remember every, the last song they played 
on the night that we went, I can't remember which night it was, was um, Isn't She Lovely by Stevie Wonder. Wow. And suddenly Vivian and I, you know, and before that they'd been playing Susie and the Banshees oh, yeah. and, you know, whoever. <laughs> um, and Vivian and I were the last people on the dance floor. And suddenly we were dancing together to Isn't She Lovely. <laughs> and uh, she said, I said, oh, hello, Vivian. She said, hello, what do you do? I said, a fashion student at St. Martin's. And she went, how <laughs> horrible. And then I trod on her foot by mistake. But we always laughed. Much later in life, we, we, we laughed about that. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, but I worked with her for quite a few seasons. I did the Tweed Crown. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. When she would do a, um, a collection, how would it work? Would What was her brief or what was the interaction or how did you decide what you wanted to do or what did she want from you? It's so funny because I, I have a feeling that she never really did a collection as we call it nowadays. Yeah. She collated a group of clothes together and had an idea of it. Yeah. But I think it was much more uh, an emotional approach oh. or a I mean, as we would say now, a political approach. It yeah. wasn't really making, you know, a, a skirt with that in that length, that length, and that length. Uh, yeah. If it was to be a skirt, that's what she did. Yeah. And as a customer, she was the great artist. I mean, you wouldn't ask Picasso to move that figure to slightly to the left and slightly to the right. Uh. So neither would you ask Vivian. You wore it, and in fact, then you wore fashion as it was portrayed. So whether it was Vivian in London or Claude Montana in Paris, yeah. um, you wore it as it was w worn on the runway. Because yeah. otherwise, why would you spend that money? <laughs> I, I remember um, Amanda Verdon, who was the buying director of Harvey Nichols uh -huh. during the 80s, uh -huh. said to me, you know, all those like Thierry Mugler, uh -huh. Montana, all those people sold extremely well. The biggest, they had no problem selling them. The biggest problem is if they didn't have the matching shoes in the right size, because then the client wouldn't buy the entire outfit. Oh, because what was the point? Yeah, they wanted the total look at yeah, the time. Even the size of shoe. When did you first get involved with Galliano? Galliano, well, I'd known him mm. slightly when he was at college. Mm. And according to Colin McDowell, yeah. he asked me to make hats for his glass collection, which frankly, I don't remember. <laughs> But it's gone down into history and fine, so be it. And I'm saying it now on this podcast to you, Godfrey, so I guess it must be true. On the record. Yeah. Um, but I started my first assistant, Sabil de Saint-Fal, also started to work for him. Oh. And so that's how we first made contact. But, you know, we were going out to clubs. Uh, and so I, I would see him on the other side of the dance floor. And he was that young guy at St. Martin's when we... Actually, only and then I introduced him to Stephen Robinson, who was his main assistant for very many uh, years. Okay. Uh, Stephen, I, I judged as winning a hat competition, and I said, "Well, what's the prize?" And I think the prize was half a bottle of champagne or something. And he said, "Well, I really want to meet John Galliano and become an intern with him." And actually, became oh. his right-hand man for, throughout his time at Galliano for, and Dior, and quite a Svengali for John too. Uh, a period of John's greatest triumphs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it was. Actually, in 1993, yeah. that I first worked with him, and that was on the Princess Lucretia collection. You know, the one with the huge crenolines, ah. which is one of John's most famous collections, which was shown here in Paris. That was the first time I worked with him. 
Um, was that for Galliano? It was for Galliano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I worked with him, and then it, I, uh, just before it. he joined Givenchy. Yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, I worked on the Sarah Schlumberger show uh, oh. at her house. Yeah, yeah. Well, I attended that show. Wow, you were yeah. there. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, yeah. The, what, that, uh, yeah. Did you go to Woodstock too? I, I didn't go to Woodstock, but I did go to the Sarah Schlumberger show, which some people think of as you know. Uh, perhaps after the new look, the single most famous fashion show of them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it was extraordinary. Yeah, uh, uh, and for instance, that was an unusual meeting of chinoiserie, Japanese uh, silhouettes, and Galliano's own theatrical fantasy. Mm -hmm. What was his brief when he asked you to make the, the hats to go with that? It was very simple. Yeah. He said to me, "I'd like hats which were." beautiful and extravagant and rather 1940s and that was it and that was it yeah. and i i so i i it was one of also my favorite times as well because the as far as interesting hats for me it's so always during wartime yeah. that people have to be very inventive so people were making hats out of paper and whatever they could find yeah. because yeah. they didn't have money to have new hats made um or rather buy a new hat yeah. so i concocted these sort of fantasies, sometimes they're little top hats, yeah. sometimes they had giant hat pins. Yeah. And I worked very closely with Amanda Harlock on them. Ah. Um, and Amanda was really my go-to person because John was working on the clothes with Stephen. Oh. Oh. And I remember um, taking them out of a box mm. and showing them to Amanda and, I, and then to John. And I said, so... Um, what are the, this is the night before the show, what are the alterations? Because I've been working with Claude Montana, who was absolutely fastidious and always wanted a million changes. I'd been working with him maybe since 86 or 87, so I've been working with him quite a while, for quite a few years. And Amanda said, I think they look great. And John said, they're perfect as they are. And I thought, well, what do I do now then? <laughs> I really did not know. But then during the show, uh, there was Julian Deese's hairdos and I put the hats on and it was amazing. But there was one particular time um, we were putting Kate Moss into her Obi sash and she had a, a little organza kimono on with a black sash yes. in, black sat in satin embroidered with flowers. And I remember John was pinning one side of it oh. And I was pinning the other side of it, and we—it it was like we were dancing together. It was like <laughs> it was like we were lovers or something. <laughs> and I remember when we just sent her out. It was this funny little thing, and we sent her out, and we looked at each other, and we sort of fell in love because we knew that we'd done great work. Oh, and, and what is love if it's not, you know, creating something? Um. Galliano then, of course, then landed the job at Christian Dior, where yeah. you continued. Yeah, well, uh, he first, of course, went to Givenchy, was, uh, yeah. and we were at Givenchy for a year. But the, all of a sudden, you were, in a, you were a couture uh, milliner, which is a different level. I mean, John had always been a couturier. Yeah. This idea that it might be ready to wear is completely ridiculous, <laughs> even though people used to say you needed to have a map to put uh, an instruction booklet to put a Galliano dress on because it was so sort of asymmetrically cut and everything. But, um, you yeah, know, being a well, Dior, being a haute couture milliner was really something. Did you feel that you had to create a slightly different, more sophisticated, more advanced, bigger, more elaborate hat because you're in couture? Hmm. 
No, because our hats had always been made in that way. Right. However, one was completely aware of the legacy of Dior and all those silhouettes that we'd loved throughout the time we'd been aware of design even. Mm -hmm. And all of them came, or so many of them came from Dior. You know, obviously there were other influences like Balenciaga or Jacques Fath from mm -hmm. mid-century. But, you know, Dior really was the one. And this, I think, also was the unique thing about one a, de a modern designer going to a house which hardly ever happens, that John had always been supremely influenced by Christian Dior. He loved Dior. He was doing Dior before he went to Dior. And I think that's also why Monsieur Arnaud had the foresight in order to see that, uh, because he realized that this was, could, be a, could be a perfect match. And it was. Yes, it was. There was a period of... Several years when it was seemed to have been the most important show in the world, mm -hmm. you know, the, the defining show in Paris of the Paris season. Sure. You, um, uh, until, for a variety of reasons, he burned out. Do you mm -hmm. think that fashion is cruel that way, that it, it, it discards, it uses designers and discards them? I think it, I think it does, uh, and I think it that cycle uh, has become faster and faster and uh, faster. Uh, but, you know, there's... It's always been like that. Even if you look back to the beginning of the 20th century, yeah. um, there was a, there's a photograph of Poiret and Chanel, and Poiret looks like the past and Chanel looks like the future. <laughs> it, it's just that simple. So I remember Mark cool. Jacobs once saying to me, oh, yeah. he said, I've been so lucky. He said, I've held on to my fashion thing for many, many years. Yeah. Most people fizzle out in two or three years. Yeah. It's, it's extremely unforgiving. Yeah. Um, you've continued in uh, working in, in Paris, but also in Milan. Yeah. What yeah. do you do there? I I mean, I've been working recently with Jeremy Scott at, at Moschino, yeah. which is wonderful. I When he first came to Paris from um, New York, I think he was in New York beforehand, I started to work with him then. That was in the early 90s. Oh. And so I'd known him for a very long time. And when he started to work at Moschino, he asked me to create hats there. And if you wanted to make a funny hat or a surreal hat, that's the place to do it. <laughs> With Jeremy's called a Moschino. Yeah, yeah. And also you continue working in Paris. You work yeah. for several people here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I work with Dior and obviously I work with Maria Grazia. I'm part of her studio. So within that, we work on the Haute Couture we have haute couture clients. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing many of those clients this week because oh. they're ordering specific hats. Oh. Um, and Variations on the hats that you can include in the yes, show. Yes, but actually not only that, oh. because at Dior, uh, what we can do is actually remake any of designs of previous years. Oh. So, for example, at the moment, I'm making for one particular client some recreations of hats which were designed by Mr. Monsieur Dior. Ah, and wow. so we're going back to his original sketches, his uh, the original photographs, and recreating because often they're buying the clothes as well, so they want to have mm. their matching hat. But do they have they digitized the the archives sufficiently yes. that people look at them? Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. I mean, Dior has done that. That's one thing about fashion now. Yeah. So much of it is digital. Uh, in exhibitions around the world. Yeah. I mean, for example, I work with Scaparelli as well, and they are with with Daniel Rosebery, and 
um, they have, have had this exhibition at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs, uh, which has been a huge hit. Yes. Um, and Daniel, I know from Tom Brown, because he was the design director there for yeah. 10 years or something. And what for the Scaparelli thing? Do you recreate hats, original hats? Was that part of the brief? Someti- sometimes. In the exhibition. In the exhibition, yeah. Sometimes yeah. I recreated original hats yeah. because they no longer exist. You know, uh, with fashion curators are looking at things, often they have the outfit, but they don't have the accessories. Yeah. So I will go back and I will use techniques which are of the period, materials which are of the period. But also included in this, that exhibition was a lot of Scaparelli clothes from current collections. So within that, they use the hats which went with the outfits. Um, when we, we talk to a lot of CEOs, but also a lot of designers, and uh, we live in a, a, a data-driven era, and uh, so many decisions in merchandising and in, in more and more in creation are driven by that data. Mm-hmm. Does that happen in your case? Well, we certainly know what sells and what doesn't. (laughs) That's a a very uh, clear picture. Um, Yeah, I mean, for example, within Dior, absolutely, we have all that information because we're selling in so many countries in the world and we can see every week what's selling a lot and what's not selling so much. How does data and the internet and the modern world, how does that convert with what I do, which yeah. is making hats by hand, you yeah. know, and one person spending four days making one hat. <laughs> well, it does, and it always has done, because what I do is about communication. So I'm on the go most of the time. People always say, well, where do you live, Stephen? London or Paris? I live third in London, third in Paris, and third everywhere else. <laughs> and they said, where's your workroom? And I tend to say, wherever my telephone is. So I'm sketching in my notebook, taking those sketches and WhatsApping them back to London or to my atelier in Paris to say, I think we should have something like this. So the data, it, yeah, that communication thing, visual community. I had a fax machine in London in the 80s before anybody else I knew, apart from Harrods, <laughs> because I was bought one by my Japanese licensee, Isitan. So they wanted to hear that back and forth of images. Yeah, yeah. W- one thing, if I remember rightly, when I last saw you in your uh, your boutique in London, in, in mm-hmm. Covent Garden, that you explained to me, you actually go and road with a little kit yeah. of um, um, canvas and and, and, and and scissors and glue mm-hmm. and things. And a little wooden head, too. A little wooden head that you yeah. actually make miniature heads. Yes, yeah. What yeah. other materials do you carry in that little, that little doctor's bag? Aspirin, <laughs> eye patches. Um, I wish hats were more thought in advance, but they do tend to be the last minute things. Um, what else do I carry in my bag? It's funny enough, always in the bottom, what I find is a little cutting of ribbon. Uh, or I okay. find some pins of a particular colour and I think, what the hell is that in there for? And then I remember, my God, this was six months ago at Louis Vuitton and that was a little bit of the ribbon and I go back to that night where I was doing that or the fitting where it didn't suit the girl and was the girl wrong or was the hat wrong you know (laughs) so they're little sort of ciphers of memory um the particular day I went to see you was a couple it was that uh, sad weekend when um the queen had passed away right and um you're practically every hot 
hat in a particular black that day. Yes, yeah. We changed the shop over to all black hats. You did it for the whole yeah. flat week, yeah. 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 I, I mean, um, for our listeners' sake, you should realize if you look back at the images of, of, of that uh, that sad occasion, it's striking how many of the ladies were wearing mm-hmm. your hats. Yeah, yeah. 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 Which much of, I mean, meant quite a lot to you, I would have thought. It did. And many of the ladies who attended the funeral and many who do not who did not who right. wanted to have a morning hat just for that day even yeah. if they weren't going to Westminster Abbey mm. uh, because they were going to a local church service yeah. or um, they're people that I've known and they're people who are, uh, are my friends and um, you know if you're making a hat for a funeral it's a very potent symbol very potent symbol um we have quite a lot of young listeners or teenagers or college kids or young people hoping to have a career in luxury well, like us. fashion, <laughs> not like veterans like us who could retire if we could afford to. And um, um, what would be three bits of advice you would give them if they wanted a career in, in, in this world? Within the fashion world, the three bits of advice. Well, I can tell you about it. It's a really tough life, but it's also so magical, so magical, because it's about our appearance. It's how, the you know, we're all born naked. The rest of it, you know, it's so, it's so funny because often when you speak to people, they'll say, you know, if you talk to a bloke, yeah. he'll say, I'm not interested in fashion. Yeah. But the fact that he's wearing a T-shirt and jeans, that's so much as a fashion statement. And he's wearing a Balenciaga ball gown. <laughs> Absolutely. But three words of advice. Um, I think you have to love it. Because at four o'clock in the morning, when you're crying... Uh. And it seems uh, impossible. You still have to love it because that's the thing which will see you through. The other thing is that you probably cannot make it by yourself. You need your help of your friends and your family because in those times that you don't believe in yourself, and believe me, that's not something that gets necessarily easier with age. We all have this thing that, you know, you get used to it, but am I doing the right thing? Am I doing my best work? Sometimes you need your friends and family to boost your confidence. And maybe it's just them making you a cup of tea. Maybe it's them taking you in your arms and saying, don't worry. Maybe them say, they're saying you're fabulous. Um, but that's an important mm. element. Um, Another bit of information, uh, something else I would say, which is from my personal experience, and this is not necessarily right for everybody, but I think make something for your friends that your friends want to wear, not this imaginary woman, because then it will have a reality. And this is a great thing. If they put it on and it works, they'll tell you. And if it doesn't work, they'll tell you even more. And quite quickly. And quite quickly. And that's probably a better lesson than anything you'll learn from one of your tutors. But, yeah, you have to be in love with it. You have to be in love with it. And people who are in fashion often cannot explain why they do love it. Maybe it's this color. Maybe it's fame. Maybe it's money. Or maybe 
it's because you don't know how else to express yourself. You could be a poet, you could be a cook, you could be a car designer, you could be a mum. It's just as creative. But somehow fashion allows you to create your, to express yourself in a way that nothing else does. Stephen Jones, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Godfrey.